This is the Black Hole Podcast with host Ryan Millsap. With a vision of how real estate could turn into movies and how movies could turn into money, Millsap set out to build the state's largest film complex. After checking that box, Millsap returned to his entrepreneurial roots, where real estate ventures, entertainment opportunities, nonprofit support, and golf course business deals rule the day. What's next for Ryan Millsap? Listen up, and you'll find out. Most cities have an Emory Morse Burger, a superhero, a Batman of community improvement. In Atlanta, it's Emory. Spearheading the creation of improvement districts in Tucker, Norcross, Atlanta, Duluth, and the Highway 78 corridor, Emory's footprint is everywhere. He walks to the top of Stone Mountain every morning to see the sunrise. And when asked about his well-being, Morseberger always responds with, Incredible! And he is. Help me welcome the incredible Emery Morseberger. Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Emery, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. I'm glad you're here. So, um, you know, for the listeners, we know each other outside of the podcast. We uh, actually served on a... Uh, community Improvement District together down yes. at the Metro South CID. Most people don't know what a CID is. Can you explain it a little bit? Uh, it's a, a Community Improvement District is a area where commercial property owners come together and agree that they want to improve their area beyond what the government is doing or can do. They come together and agree to pay some extra property taxes that go into a fund then they elect a board of directors who manages that fund to accomplish their goals. And that might be security, road improvements, landscaping, all kinds of other improvements. So it's kind of like an HOA. Kind of like an HOA with a little more horsepower. That's right. It's a it's a HOA for a huge area of, of uh, generally industrial or office or just commercial real estate. Yes. And there are 35 CIDs in Metro Atlanta, and they're all very successful, doing a great job for both their, their member property member owners and for the surrounding neighborhoods. Now, you've been very involved with CIDs. I've started five around Metro Atlanta and currently run two of them, the, the largest in the state, Gateway 85 in Norcross and Tucker Summit CID in, in DeKalb. What are some of the biggest benefits you've seen that come, have come out of CIDs? Uh, tremendous improvements in the quality of life working there, uh, better access for getting trucks in and out, and then much better security. Most, most CIDs in, around Atlanta have extra security in addition to the regular county or city police departments. And that's made a huge difference in reducing crime in all of the CIDs. Now, you got involved with CIDs mostly through commercial real estate. Yes, I owned a lot of commercial real estate along Highway 78 in Gwinnett County. 
in the late 90s and, and led an effort to begin revitalizing some of the more distressed areas in Gwinnett. And um, we, we looked at different ways to improve areas that were depressed and community improvement districts, which were just beginning in Georgia at that time, seemed to be the best way to go about it. So we started the first CID on Highway 78 in Gwinnett County uh, in 2002, started the Gwinnett Place CID in 2004, and the largest CID there in Gwinnett that I now run uh, is the Gateway 85 CID, and it's going strong. Well, and you've been involved in all sorts of restoration efforts and, and distressed real estate over the years. I know, you know, we're sitting in Midtown. We're not far from Pond City Market. You have yes. a lot of history with Pond City Market. I put together the deal that ultimately brought about what is now Pond City Market. Basically got that under contract with the city in 2003, put together a development team of superstars that worked it forward and then ended up turning it over to Jamestown Properties, one of our partners, in 2009 uh, when the the whole real estate industry crashed. I've also, uh, I bought downtown Lawrenceville and restored that, uh, bought a number of other projects around Metro Atlanta and got them up and running and, and have been going strong. What was the old fourth ward like in 2003 when you Ooh. put the, uh, was it the Sear, old Sears building? Uh, it was the, it, it was um, originally the Sears distribution center for the Southeast and had been bought by Maynard Jackson in 1990 for $11 million. And, and That's the a lot city, of money in 19. It was a lot of money, but it, it was a 2 million square foot building. And um, the city moved its police department and some other departments there, but it never used more than 25% of the building. We, we convinced Shirley Franklin, who was the mayor at the time and just was phenomenal, that it, the money would... the property was being underused and the police department would be much better elsewhere. So we convinced her to sell the building and we worked out the contract to buy it and had it under contract ready to roll. We also were involved in the Beltline. I actually chainsawed pine trees between the rails at North Avenue and Pont and and Ralph McGill and all that area around there, the Ford factory lofts. Uh, when when most of the developers in in Metro Atlanta thought I was crazy, uh, they 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 said nobody's going to come to that place when it's so full of drug dealers and hookers. That's what I I mean. I when I think of what the old Fourth Ward was mm-hmm. in the early two thousands, it, it was a little bit more grittier. It was very very <laughs> gritty. Yeah. That's well described. When I think about you know actually Maynard Jackson paying eleven million, I guess with two million square feet, they're talking about like five fifty yes. a foot. Yep. <laughs> Five dollars yes. and fifty cents a foot. Yep. So that's not so bad. No. When, and ultimately, what, we got it under contract for around fifteen dollars a square foot. Okay, which is incredible. Which is incredible. But then, I mean, Jamestown spent a huge number. Jamestown spent probably two hundred million dollars on it, and and it has been a home run for them. Home run. I mean, but even two hundred million, you're still only talking about a hundred bucks a foot. Correct. Of additional spend, and so I bet Ponce has got to be worth a thousand bucks a foot. It's one of the more valuable properties in Atlanta. And um, I got to give Matt Brofman and his team credit for doing a great job there. Yeah, they did a great job, not only obviously for their investors, because they've made their investors a lot of money, and they've done that many, many places. They have a ton of success. 
but it's become really the the cornerstone of the Beltline. Yes. When people talk about going to the Beltline in Atlanta, generally they're either coming to or from Pont City Market. Yes. Yep. So okay, so you you have a, a you've got this huge background in commercial real estate. You've touched all sorts of things. Been very involved in community development. How did you get involved with the Ukraine? Ooh, I, I had a computer company in the 80s and 90s that uh, I worked seven days a week, 24-7 on, and sold it to a British conglomerate in 92 when I was running for Congress and, and decided that um, I, I was going to live a little bit. And I set a goal of going to every country in the world. You did? Did you make that goal? Well, I'm still working on it. Uh, I went to Ukraine in uh, 1998, and, and uh, my, my 104th country was Turkey uh, in June. But um, when I went to Ukraine, I, I was really impressed with the people. I had never met people that so loved their freedom as the Ukrainians. They had been under the Russian thumb, the Soviet thumb, for generations, and they were finally out and free in '90 when the Soviet Union basically collapsed, and they really wanted to stay free. They did not want to become enslaved again by the Soviet Union or Russia. So I, I had uh, paid attention to them and, and watched their their evolution and was really torn apart when they were invaded on February 24th. And I, I get, wrote checks for uh, different charities, but I wanted to do more than write checks, and I wanted to get actively involved. And uh, in early May, I, I was asked to go with a, a load of medical equipment that was being shipped in June. In fact, it was funded by Atlanta Area Rotary Clubs, and, and the shipment was the idea of a Buckhead Rotarian, Radu Zanervo, who has a father in Romania, a, a physician, who was tuned in with a doctor in Ukraine, uh, Ola Palachuk, who, uh, who was keeping a list of all of the supplies needed by the hospitals in Ukraine. Uh, he, uh, Radu Sr. in Romania got this list from Oha, who I call Florence Nightingale, and because she is a Florence Nightingale, Nightingale of Ukraine. And... Um, he, he sent the list to his son in, in Buckhead, and they spoke to a couple rotary clubs around Metro Atlanta, raised a, a lot of money, and, and ended up doing several shipments. I went with the third shipment and uh, basically flew into uh, Bucharest, Romania, uh, drove north to Suceava, Romania, and then... Uh, met with a lot of Romanians that were working to get medical equipment and food into Ukraine, uh, then, then ended up driving across the border with two Ukrainian women. I called them my bodyguards. Uh, Ukraine doesn't allow its males to leave the country, so only women can, can come and go. So uh, the two women drove me through the border, and uh, we then worked on food distribution to refugees in Ukraine. And I was just really amazed at the volunteer efforts that were being done throughout Ukraine. But uh, after providing the food to the refugees, of which there are 5 million 
In fact, uh, Ukraine had a population of 41 million. Five million left the country completely. 100,000 are coming to the United States, and, and a lot went to other parts of Europe. And, and in addition to the five million who left totally the country uh, because they were being bombed out, there were five million who had to leave the eastern part of the country, the Donbass area, and and um, that's the part that Russia right now is. Tricky. That's the part that Russia is barely holding on to, and I think is soon going to lose. Uh, th- those five million refugees are housed in gyms, in government buildings, and four families to a house, and uh, that that's who we were delivering food to. From there, we I went to Kiev, where I delivered surgical equipment to the lead doctor at the main hospital in Kiev, Doctor Alexander who, uh, by the way, he, he was a Rotarian, and everybody I was dealing with were Rotarians, coincidentally. Um, just phenomenal people every step of the way. Uh, went, Amazing reach. I mean, if, any, if people don't know about the Rotary Club. The Rotary Clubs are, are phenomenal. Um, and and, and it's, uh, it's amazing that people here in Atlanta can, can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, buy equipment, and, and trust people on the other side of the world to deliver that equipment to the hands of people who need it. That there, there's no slippage along the way. It, it's conveyed every step of the way. And um, after delivering to the, the equipment to the doctors in Kiev, I went to um, Chernovisti, or, or I'm sorry, Cherkasy, which is close to the war zone, and uh, had air raid sirens going continuously, but we kept on going. Uh, delivered more medical equipment, looked at different uh, refugee centers there. And, and this was about 100 miles from the front at that time. And Is the U.S. government not providing enough um, medical equipment? The, the U.S. government is doing a lot. It, it's basically keeping the Ukrainian government going. It, it's it's delivering, as you know, a lot of military equipment and supplies and a lot of other supplies, but there's still a gap on, on medical equipment and food. And, and is it hard to find U.S.-based medical supply companies and or hospitals or... How, so is it just a question of money and then going and buying the stuff, or, or are you partnering with these guys? Are they selling it at a discount? I mean, what, tell me how the supply chain looks. It's, it's really interesting. Um, uh, there are volunteer groups all over the world helping out, and, and it, the Rotary is probably the largest volunteer group. And, and I mentioned the list that was put together by Florence Nightingale, uh, that list comes to FODAC, which stands for Friends of Disabled Adults and Children in Tucker. And in Tucker, basically, they, they buy medical equipment around the United States. Often it's been refurbished. Um, in other words, it might be a $30,000 original price bought for $10,000, like, and it looks just like new. And, and then FODAC... Uh, gets it shipped into their warehouse in Tucker, which happens to be in my Tucker Summit CID, and I'm on their advisory board. And, and they pal- palletize it and arrange for it to be shipped to Romania, where it's met by Romanian Rotarians, and, and then they handle the shipment by truck across the border into Ukraine. In, in most cases, it's going to southwest Ukraine, which is the opposite side from where the war is going on. 
And and then there, uh, Rotarians actually receive the equipment and distribute it to hospitals. The shipment that I ended up escorting was 37 pallets weighing 12,000 pounds and was delivered to 14 hospitals, including three right at the war. I mean, where they were taking care of soldiers who had been injured. What kind of a dent does that make in the actual need? Uh, it's 37 pallets. It's small. But there, there's, 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 there's equipment coming from all over the world. I mean, we were, I was in warehouses that had shipments from Germany, Austria, Canada, Argentina, all, all, all over the world. People are shipping equipment in, and and uh, and sending money for food to be bought in adjoining countries. It doesn't make sense for us to ship food from the United States to Ukraine. It's just too expensive to ship it. But you, the the food that some of the food we're buying is actually bought in Romania, grown in Romania, and then trucked across. Do you have any sense of what percentage of the need is being met from this, you know, global effort? At, at this point, I'd I'd say we're doing pretty well. Okay. Okay. So as did... long as we keep it up, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have more needs. And it's all kind of wound care and catheters and all kinds of uh, breathing supplies for people who've had different kind of generally um, artillery shell injuries. What, what's the kind of next step for you? Like, what's your, what are you focused on? Are you trying to raise money? Are you trying to find more supplies? I, I When I was there in Ukraine for two weeks, I, I, I think I became brain damaged. I, I basically became committed to raising money to help these people any way I could. So when I got back to the United States the end of June, I set up a nonprofit. We have a website, helpingukraine.us, and um, we have been raising money to buy more medical equipment. We sent a shipment two weeks ago and have another shipment going in the next two weeks. And and that is including surgical drills for, for a lot of orthopedic work and it's including incubators, uh, battery backup incubators for newborns that are born. They're, they're in an incubator, and they have to have a constant temperature and humidity for, for optimal health. And, and when the air raid siren goes off and they have to get down into the bomb shelter in the basement of the hospital, they can just lift the incubator up and take it to the basement. And that's the way it works. And so that's, that's the need for medical equipment that we're specifically working for. Other groups are working on different kinds of things like ambulances and fire engines or, or generators to power a hospital that, that gets the power system knocked out. You, you might have read that Putin is targeting power systems and he's been targeting water supplies. Uh, so uh, in addition to generators, there's people working on water filter, water purification equipment. Uh, a lot of people are working on food. Again, there's 5 million refugees there in the country that they need more food for. Um, let's talk about the drills yes. and, the, and the incubators. That's a, uh, what would it cost? Like, let's say somebody wanted to buy a drill. Surgical drill set costs $12,000. Twelve grand. How about the incubator? Somebody wants incubators to are sixteen thousand dollars a piece. In fact, two of my buddies each bought one two weeks ago. 
So on the website, does it actually break down like some of those items that they're you're well, hoping to I'm, find people? I'm to buy? setting that up. Okay. Yes. What's a what's a smallest donation that somebody could make? You twenty five bucks. Twenty five bucks. bucks. Uh, you you we have a five hundred one c three set up, and and you go to helpingukraine.us, and and you can get right to the five hundred one c three. Uh, you can send in a check. You can tr- do a funds transfer, or or you can put a credit card amount through. Do the credit card companies still charge a fee on that? Do you know yes. what they do? Yeah, I think it's about three percent. Okay, I wonder if they uh, ever make exceptions for unique situations like this or nonprofits. I no, haven't seen them yeah. do that. <laughs> it would be nice. It's so much more convenient yes. to pay with. The yes, credit but card. we 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 have gotten breaks. Um, the shipments that we're sending from Tucker. Uh, over to Ukraine, uh, uh, UPS ships for free from Tucker to Hartsfield-Jackson, and then Delta has been giving us half price on freight shipments from Hartsfield-Jackson to Munich. Wow. And then trucking companies are, are generally rotary-connected going from Munich over to Romania. So we're they, getting are discounts. Are they handling that or they, for free, too, like, like UPS? Uh, or we're getting really, really good discounts. Like cost. Like cost or, or less. Because uh, a lot, uh, we we will generally get three or four times the value of equipment for our dollar, either through getting discounts or or convincing producers of equipment to make contributions. Have you gotten the whole Morseburger clan involved in this? Uh, They've been pretty active. They've gone to a couple rallies and... Uh, they're involved. I've got seven daughters. That's and what I was going to say. I'm seven say, daughters and yeah. nine grandchildren, and I actually have a daughter in Birmingham that's been helping me in the Birmingham area, and um, they're they're committed. And I've got a brother that's been helping in Washington D.C. So when you're not working on uh, the Ukraine or CIDs right now, what else do you have going on? I'm sure it's something else. I'm I'm really focusing on on Ukraine. Um, and uh, we we've we've got uh, a lot of family stuff going on. I mean, our our kids are now having kids, and my wife is in grandchild heaven, and uh, they they we enjoy being with the whole family. Uh, I'm hoping to do some more travel, but uh, I can't stop thinking about the Ukraine thing. So I'm going to connect you to a buddy of mine, and when we're off the, when we're off this podcast, his name is Garrett Gravenson. He lives here in Atlanta. He just completed visiting every country in the world. Wow. 197 countries. Okay. He saved the very last country uh, to be San Marino, the little country inside of Italy. And he organized for 80 of his friends from all over the world to meet him in Milan after he went to San Marino. And so recently I was in Milan with Garrett for a four-day party that he threw after going to his final country on his wow. visit to, you know. All, How old is he? He's, I think, 42. He might be 43. <laughs> oh Youngster, right? Yeah. He did it in 15 years. Okay. Plus or minus. Okay. He was hoping to be the first person, I think, under 40 to visit every country. But then one of his other friends he met traveling ended up doing that. Mm. And so I think right now, I think he told me there's only 40 people alive right now that have been to every country in the world. I've never met anybody that's done it. I would like never. to introduce you yes. guys. I've never love met anybody that. else who had it as a goal. Okay. And you'll love this guy. I mean, he's got incredible energy. Um, he was uh, uh, went to UGA, 
Then he went to Harvard. And uh, he, uh, I think it was... To get around the country, the world that... That quick, he had to have some resources. He had resources. He, you know, he he's made some really good decisions in business. Um, they built a, a a great marketing company, Chick Fil A, one of one of their big clients. Okay. Uh, Garrett was uh, more of the revenue driver than the day to day operator, mm-hmm. and so he had a lot of free time, right inside of the business, and so he. Uh, just committed to trying to get this thing done, and so every year he would have these, you know, big stretches where all he was doing was traveling. Right, and then you can imagine, like a lot of the countries. I don't know what the hardest country for you to get into. Af- you- a lot of the African countries are tougher, and, tougher. I, and then I haven't been in any countries at war. Right, so you know he had to find his way into Afghanistan, right. Iran, That's- North Korea. I mean, make a list of all those. Right, some it- of those I don't think I'll ever accomplish. Well, he could tell you how to do it if you ever okay. want to, right? So that's why I think it's going to be okay. fun for you guys to, that sounds to good. connect. And and, yeah. and actually, Sarah, you know, we we should uh, get Garrett on the podcast. That'd be actually a really funny, yeah, fun podcast. And um, but I think you guys really enjoy each other because mm-hmm. he just accomplished this goal that you know you've gotten your sights, and he could be that's really amazing. a great resource. And he knows he knows probably half of the people that are on the list of forty people that have been right. To every country in the world, so wow. he he has a really uh, deep bench of talent that he can call upon to say, "How'd you get into North Korea?" <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, really. So good. I, I, yeah. I'll look. I'm looking forward to good. Put, putting you guys yes. together. Excellent. Um, okay, so then other next steps on um, Ukraine that we can do to help. We need we need to raise money for more shipments. We're, 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 the medical equipment needs continue, and the food needs are growing now as we're going into winter. Mm, so, so we want to get more shipments of, of medical equipment going, and and shipments of food bought in Romania and then shipped in, and and all of this is being distributed by volunteers. I mean, literally picking up stuff at warehouses, loading them in in minivans generally, and delivering it to its destination, and then distributing the food by, with volunteers at, at food distribution sites all over the country. You'd mentioned 5 million Ukrainians that have left Ukraine. Correct. How many Ukrainians inside of Ukraine are currently without their homes? Around 5 know? million also. Another 5 million. Yeah. yeah. So you've got I mean, it's a quarter of the country. The country's 41 million people. And, and 10 million a, people have been displaced. Yes. Yes. That's wild. And they're, they're good people. They're... Um, just like us. I mean, they're middle-class people that just want to work and send their kids to school and live lives in peace. Yeah. And, and uh, they really appreciate what we're doing. Um, as I was passing out food, it was amazing how many people looked me in the eye and said, thank you. And, and many times when I tried to slip them a, a, a $100 bill, most all of them said, no, I, I'm not taking charity. <laughs> yeah. They're they're really proud and they're really determined to win this thing. Yeah. They, they will die before they lose. What they really meant was, I don't know where I'm going to spend this hundred dollars. <laughs> no, <true>. no. <laughs> What's the currency in Ukraine right now? Uh, are, they, are, they, are they using euros? I don't no, know. No, uh, you can use euros, but they've got their own currency. Is that like Ukrainian ruble? Do they call it a ruble? I, I don't think it's called a ruble, and I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember what the currency was. And I did. Don't I be was embarrassed. I don't it. know what it is either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So when you think about, t- tell us some other stories about when you were there, things you saw. 
that were because not oh. very many people in America have ever been in a war zone. None of mo- very few of us have ever had to deal with air raid sirens. Tell me about both the things you saw and some I, of the things I, you were I, well, feeling. Well, the the um, when I dropped off the medical equipment to the surgeons in Kiev. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they showed. I, I met with a number of wounded people, both civilians and soldiers, and and uh, they they re, you they really appreciated what we're doing for them. But they they were really interested. The, the soldiers were interested in getting back into it. Being wounded isn't an, a way to get out. It's just a disruption before you can go back to the front. They are determined there. Uh, uh, 20 miles outside of Kiev, I went to some of the areas that were just totally destroyed, and um, it, it, it blows your mind. I met a guy who had 28 people uh, in his basement as, as the, the initial bombings were occurring outside of Kiev, and, and when the tanks were a block away, they all 28 managed to get out of his basement and get away safely. And then the, the Russians came in and blew up the, his, and burned his house. And I met him there at his house. He took me down into what remained of his basement and, and showed me where they had stayed for three weeks. And uh, he, he's determined to rebuild. He, he wants to get started rebuilding. And there's a lot of people that are wanting to get back into their homes or rebuild their homes if they were demolished. Uh, that, I'd say that was the, the most profound thing. And then the, the unity of everyone in that country. I mean, it, it would be like if, if Canada attacked New York, uh, people would evacuate New York and go to Florida and California. And, 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 and the, the people in the rest of the country welcomed these refugees, these internal displaced people with open arms and is actively taking care of them, both housing, food, and, and even their school needs. A lot of kids getting all kinds of special education. When you, when you talk about the, the determination of a country that's being invaded, mm-hmm. it's good to hear that you felt like their spirits were high. Yes. Because really their back's against a wall. They don't really have a choice. I mean that's how they have to feel like it's you know this this is not there's no option correct there's a, there's no chance they're handing their country over to Putin no no they, they as like I said they will die before they do that right and that's that's, that's a, universal there that's an incredibly difficult army to overcome yes right an army that's committed to victory or death correct and and that's the way the American Revolution was a lot 100%. of a lot of things in common there where. Uh, those revolutionary soldiers were were willing to die. I mean, Nathan Hale saying, "Give me free liberty or give me death," or, and I have I regret that I have but one life to give for my country, and that's the way these people are. Um, they're they're willing to die for that, and they're willing to go voluntarily and fight for that. What are they hearing? Like, so through the Ukrainians, obviously they have a lot of contacts into Russia. Right, because yes. there's many times like familial ties back yes. and forth because of the of the uh, Soviet Union connection. Mm-hmm. What are the Ukrainians saying about what they're hearing through the grapevine from Russia about this well, war? Well, first of all, the the areas that Russia conquered in 2014 never were fully loyal to Russia. Okay, there there remained a lot of resistance there, and and, and that resistance is now coming into gear big time. Uh, sat blowing up Russian 
ammunition depots and bridges and miscellaneous equipment and knocking off uh, the the puppet leaders that Russians have put in that Russia has put in there. Uh, they're they're hearing a lot about the the Russians being demoralized. Putin has been a genius at at, at his PR. Uh, he's got eighty percent of his population that really doesn't know or care what he's doing, and and it was just last Wednesday that that he riled them up. It, it, he had said all along he wasn't going to draft people through any kind of mass conscript conscription, and and now here he is doing it, and they're rioting in the streets. So they they have woken up, and I think that's going to be what leads to his downfall. Well, Emery, we're out of time, but this has been a very enjoyable podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for all the good work you're doing. It's pretty incredible. Well, (laughs) thank you, Ryan. And you're incredible. And thank you for having me, and thank you for all that you're doing for Atlanta and for the world. It's my pleasure. This has been the Black Hall Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.